0: You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com.
1: Everything we know, everything we think, comes from our brain. We know nothing, we think nothing other than that which our brain constructs. In all the universe, as far as our great telescopes see, brains are astonishingly unique, bracingly most complex, human brains above all. Are brains our window to reality, seeing deeply into what truly exists? Or are we bound by brains? prisoners and slaves of the meat in our heads. Brains may not be answers to big questions, but if there be answers, brains will bring them about. That's why all my life I've wondered about this. How do brains work? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. There is no one way that brains work. Brains work on multiple levels. Brains are built with the hierarchies of science. Physics, chemistry, molecular biology, genetics, biochemistry, physiology, neurophysiology, neuropsychology, I could continue, I omitted a lot. Brains can be studied as molecules, cells, structures, and systems. Brains quite literally changed my life. In a sense, everything I've done, I've viewed through the prism of brain science. That's why I begin at UCLA, the Brain Research Institute, where I was once a graduate student. I meet the current director of the Brain Research Institute, an expert on how addictions change brains, Dr. Chris Evans. I start with the neuron, the individual brain cell, the core component of brains. Chris, I first came here in 1964 to do my doctorate at the Brain Research Institute. At that time, neurophysiology was the rage, and that's what I was working on. How can we begin to understand the enormous growth in in brain research?
2: I think some of the biggest changes have been in genetics. We now know the the structure of the molecules which make up the brain. I think that's really changed our approach and our knowledge base. The building blocks are the genetics, but now we have the complications on top of the genetics which are incredibly difficult to sort out. First, there's the epigenetics, which is the control of expression of the different genes. And this, this changes through development. It changes. It's different in every cell. We're now beginning to understand a little bit more about how the brain can can encode so much information. The different communication between the, the axonal branches and the dendrites and and these these spines which form in in the synapses. We're now understanding that the, these these um, individual synapses can have little brains of them their own. Some of them express RNA, and they can translate RNA to proteins. And of course, they have their individual machinery for controlling the number of receptors on the cell surface and how they're going to respond. Okay, and and the then circuits, we're talking about the circuit. So
1: circuitry is another category of understanding brain circuitry. Brain
2: circuitry is now probably one of the biggest challenges that we're all facing. We're particularly interested in the opiate circuitry. Which Some helps of,
1: us understand the reward system of yes. the brain.
2: Yes, there's lots of circuits, okay. thousands of circuits, and they, and they change as well. Circuits are not just put in there and stay as they are. We, we know that the reward system is changing markedly, say, with pain. So the, the opiate reward system changes in a pain state. Mm. So you know opiates are very good treatments for acute pain. They're very good analgesics. Mm. But we know that pain changes how the opiates produce their reward.
1: So do you see integration between these three areas, the genetics, the single cell, and the circuitry, to understand the the totality of of how the brain works?
2: Yes. I think this is the goal of modern neuroscience: is to to, to arrange all of these different areas Mm. and to understand these different areas. And this is why... I see the, the the biggest science being team, team-based science in the future. Mm.
1: So here emerges, an as if a tricolored rainbow of brain activity, three planes, three levels on which the brain works. Genetics and epigenetics, how gene expression yields brain structures and functions. Neurons, the individual brain cell, the single unit processing information brain circuitries comprising thousands or millions of neurons which produce specific motor, cognitive, or control functions. I'm pulled by the natural progression from genes to neurons to circuits. Does the progression provide a window to reality? What about the crucial space or gap between the neurons where much of brain activity takes place? It's called the synapse. And to get the latest, I visit Kelsey Martin, professor of biochemistry at UCLA's Brain Research Institute.
0: So the synapse is the site of communication between neurons in the brain. and. Within the brain, there are uh, close to a trillion neurons, and each of those connect with one another in incredibly complex ways. And there are three components to the synapse. There's a presynaptic component, and that comes from an axon of a neuron, and that releases information in the form of chemicals that then uh, diffuse across this very small space and bind to receptors on the postsynaptic component. And that chemical information then gets converted into electrical information, and then that cell, in turn, that neuron can communicate to another downstream neuron. Uh,
1: so, so, just to get an order of magnitude here, if there are a trillion neurons all together, maybe a hundred billion in the cortex or whatever, each one can connect with roughly how many others?
0: Another with about a thousand others. Okay. So there are about a quadrillion synapses. A
1: thousand trillion or a quadrillion uh, uh, yeah. synapse. That, that's what we've got, and your job is to understand all of them.
0: Well my job (laughs) is to understand how one One works, works, and so I'm interested in what are the general principles of how a synapse works. And one of the things that's most important about it is that it's what in in brain science we call plastic. So it responds to experience. It's dynamic. It changes shape. It changes Mm -hmm. strength. Um, There are new synapses being born all the time as we learn new things. So sort of a leading hypothesis is that memories are stored as increases in the strength or the number of synapses that are formed in the brain. So there's been a lot of very beautiful work that has um, looked at how those changes at synapses happen over various time frames. For example, when I said that the presynaptic cell releases chemicals, they bind to receptor in the postsynaptic cell. Well there's some beautiful cell biological mechanisms where you can change those receptors. You can add more receptors, right. or you can change the sensitivity of those receptors so that when the chemical goes across the, the cleft, the area between the two parts of the synapse, that postsynaptic cell is more responsive to it.
1: So you can have fewer chemicals creating a, the, the same electrical impulse. Right.
0: And that will take your memory over a certain time domain. Right. But it wouldn't work tomorrow you wouldn't remember it and so for that kind of memory to persist for a longer period of time one of the discoveries is that you need to have new expression of new RNAs and new proteins and that really can change the structure of synapses and can change the number of synapses and that's a much more long-lasting change that can occur.
1: Uh, How many different kinds of memory are there? There
0: are certainly more than just short and long term and even short and long term the way that I define it is short is a form of plasticity that does not require gene expression and a long requires gene expression.
1: So if gene expression is critical for long-term memory, how does that work?
0: Okay, so every neuron has the same DNA in the body. As every um, other cell? As every other cell in the body. The really beautiful thing is that what happens is that experience changes which genes are expressed. So neurons will express a certain set of genes that makes them neurons as opposed to intestinal cells. But in addition, experience or stimuli, whether that's something that we're learning, whether it's an emotional event, whether it's an environmental event, will have an effect on the genes that are being expressed. So there you have DNA, it gets expressed into RNA, and the RNA then gets made into proteins, which are called sort of the building blocks of the, of the cell. Okay. When something happens at the synapse, that has to send a signal all the way back to the nucleus. Which can because be that's very, where the gene is. That's where the genes are. That's yeah. where the DNA is. And right. that can be a very long distance. And neurons are specialized for that. So they undergo this sort of electrochemical signaling where you get action potentials and you really rapidly signal from a synapse back to the nucleus. So we're very interested in how does that information get integrated within the neuron. I think of neurons as existing in circuits. I think a neuron on its own doesn't have much meaning in its life. You know, they really are responding to other uh, signals that they're getting from other neurons. And so we want to understand that. You know, when I think about plasticity, I'm very interested in how do these synapses change to everything that's happening? And so what's the local control over that? And then how is that local control integrated at the level of the nucleus? And that's a single neuron
1: between neurons, a quadrillion synapses, a thousand trillion, a million billion, all of them signaling, analyzing, computing, communicating, dozens or hundreds of times a second. While I recognize that a single neuron is the core operating unit of the brain, I also know that I must understand behavior and cognition in terms of whole brains. But can such understanding improve how our brains work? And conversely, if we could improve our brains, what would that tell us about brain function? Walking my old haunts at UCLA's Brain Research Institute, I meet cognitive neuroscientist Robert Bilder. I ask Bob whether brain research can help our brains work better. You know, this is, in theory, the next
3: stage of human evolution where we learn enough about our brains to be able to use them differently and thereby enhance our well-being. What we're finding through uh, recent research is that very serious massed training can induce significant neuroplasticity in the brain. If we do the right kinds of brain exercise and repeat it enough that it actually can cause plastic changes in our brain. Uh, Even the impact of aerobic exercise, which I might have been very skeptical about just a few years ago, evidence has accumulated showing that these kinds of uh, interventions can effectively change certain
1: aspects of our brain function. What what are the categories uh, that that you would say are serious and have either proven or promise to uh, help? Our own personal brain management. The training of working memory functioning is something that's shown, um, you know,
3: significant gains, and it may have generalization so what's to a other working, cognitive domains. What's a working memory uh, training system that might have this generalization? A training, for example, of uh, spatial locations, um, uh, being able to maintain in mind, keep in mind, and then manipulate. Um, that uh, spatial representation in mind so that it can then be retrieved at a subsequent point in time. These kinds of things are showing the capacity to change the fundamental way we perceive other stimuli. I think something that's really at an early stage, but I think has enormous promise, is learning how we can use our brains to better regulate our visceral and autonomic nervous system. Mm. And it's really incredible that uh, cognitive neuroscience has focused so much on the control of motor actions in the dorsal parts of our brains. But the whole ventral parts of our brains and the paths from our frontal lobes into our hypothalamus and other limbic structures has been more ignored. And I think this is a huge thing. So the processes of um, meditation, uh, like mindfulness-based uh, relaxation therapies and mindfulness-based stress reduction, I think we're going to soon begin to understand what are the brain changes that are accomplished by people who are serious practitioners, uh, and how do they accomplish the gains that they do accomplish in stress reduction um, and overall senses of well-being. Mm.
1: I marvel at brain plasticity, the remarkable capacity of the central nervous system to shape itself, to change and adapt to meet needs or demands. But all brains have plasticity, so why the special human window to reality? What can comparative brain studies suggest? What can we learn by comparing the brains and behaviors of various animals? At UCLA, I head across campus to meet Jared Diamond, physiologist, ecologist, anthropologist, author of The Third Chimpanzee, The Evolution and Future of the Human Animal.
4: We humans are obsessed with the importance of the brain because we are distinguished by a big brain. But by looking at the diversity of animal species, we should learn to be less obsessed with the brain because really big brains are very uncommon um, among mammals. And the commonest animals on Earth, the successful animals, are not humans, but the successful animals are there nematode worms, ribbon worms. Uh, they say that if you dissolved all the world and the only thing left were nematode worms, you would have an outline of all the world because nematode worms are everywhere. Beetles, rats, they're, they're very successful. The next thing we learn about brains is that they're extremely expensive. They're a metabolically expensive organ. When we compare domestic chickens with wild chickens and domestic dogs with wolves and domestic cattle with wild cattle, a universal trend in domestication is that the brain gets smaller. It's not that the first farmers tried to make dogs dumber than wolves or tried to make chickens dumber than wild chickens. It's that if you're in a barnyard, you don't need a brain as much as if you're scavenging around um, uh, out there. So, And the reason that the brain gets smaller in domestication is not that it was intentional, but it's a very expensive piece of machinery. Mm-hmm. If that piece of machinery is reduced, then there's more energy to put into Chicken breast and into a dog that will wave its tail
1: <laughs> okay, what about the, the the relationship between brain size and intelligence if we look at the, the uh, mammalian uh, um, uh, examples
4: insofar as one can measure intelligence, yes, it does increase with. Brain size, but one has to talk about relative brain size. I would expect a blue whale will have a larger brain than us humans, but a blue whale um, doesn't have the complex social structure and can't design spacecraft as we we humans. That large brain does a specific good in many ways. Um, it's not just that we can figure out where the deer is running, but our brain serves to track our very complicated social relationships. So, in a tribal society. Every person knows hundreds of other people. There's all this enormous stuff that has to be mastered. It's also to interpret things that other animals with slightly big brains can't interpret. For example, here's a real puzzle. Monkeys. Monkeys have relatively large brains, not as big as ours. You take ververt monkeys. They've got a primitive language. They have a separate grunt, a separate word for leopard and python and eagle. So here's a smart animal with a big brain. A significant predator for vervet monkeys is pythons. Vervets have a a word, a grunt for python. And you would would therefore expect that this smart animal with a big brain, when it sees a python track in the grass, would figure, that's a python, and would get scared. No, the vervet monkeys don't make the association between the track in the grass and the python. That's what we humans do with the extra... 1,000 cc of our brain over or above a chimpanzee brain. We can figure out things that a chimpanzee can't figure out. And again, that's why you and I are having this conversation with the chimps who are off zoos.
1: How about comparing the uh, very close species to the human species, Neanderthal men uh, whose brain was even bigger? Uh, at least on a quantitative basis, than our brain. What what can we say about that?
4: You and I are sapiens and we exterminated the Neanderthals. That implies that there's something qualitatively, quotes, better, something qualitatively about the sapiens' brain that allowed us to survive and not Neanderthals to survive. My personal speculation is language. Human language, um, it's... Complicated. It's not just a function of the big brain, but you've got to have the right anatomy of your vocal, vocal tract, and then you have to have your brain circuits to have grammar. So, Neanderthal brain might simply have been lacking some small areas, or those small areas might have been underdeveloped, with the result that Neanderthals could grunt, but they didn't have prepositions and they couldn't infer causation. Whereas, we, with a little more, few more grams, somewhere in our brain, because we had a slightly bigger or better, small area of the brain, that gave us prepositions. And it was prepositions that let us wipe out the Neanderthals.
1: Was it just some small difference in our brains, some size, some structure, that delivered human dominance on Earth? Small differences can have massive effects. Did small differences in our brains unlatch our window to reality? What's beyond whole brains? Artificial intelligences? What can we learn about biological brains by studying non-biological brains, massive computers, sophisticated robotics? I go to MIT, my other alma mater, to visit a former director of the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, Rodney Brooks. Looking at brains,
5: to me, that's like looking at transistors and you've got a modern computer and you put a few electrodes in and you're trying to understand the C programming language from yeah, that. Yeah. It, it, it's a very hard shift to make. But I think what artificial intelligence has given us is a way of doing the stuff at that higher level, propagates down on the silicon instead of wet stuff that's mm-hmm. in our brains. And so at least we have some ideas
1: of what Sorts of things might happen. What are the analogs in AI?
5: Well, there's various flavors of AI. The flavor that I follow tries to take some of those cognitive modules that we've discovered. Really coming from two ways. One is looking at um, over evolutionary time what things are common in different animals, and then trying to say, ah, there's a module that directs eye gaze or you know where my eyes are pointing, and that we can see that that module might be a way of describing things. And then we look at individuals, maybe infants, and see over time how they develop their Mm -hmm. eye gaze control. Mm -hmm. So early on, infants' eye gaze is just looking at their mothers. Mm -hmm. Later, when their mother looks at something else in the world, Mm -hmm. they start to think, oh, she's looking somewhere else. And their eyes go, what's going on? And then a little later, they start to look in the direction her eyes are looking. Mm -hmm. And just a little later than that, they jump directly from estimating the gaze direction to where the mother's Uh, looking uh. so we see those developments happen in the individual and that gives us some clues about what we might be able to build in a machine and then we build in the machine and it works surprisingly well my version of of ai then puts a whole bunch of those together um, and lets them interact in real time and out of that emerges what to the outside observer is a different level of of operation in the world.
1: You've noted that vision is something that in the early days of AI people thought was sort of easy and obvious and turned out to be one of the most difficult.
5: Yeah, in fact at MIT in 1966 some of those founders of the field had a summer vision project and they put a sophomore, who's now a a professor at MIT a very senior professor, put a sophomore in charge of solving vision over the summer and 50 some years later, we're, we're not close to the set of goals that they s- set up in May to plan to have finished by August. If you've got a two-year-old and you show them a key, you know, it might be a different shaped key than they've ever seen before. They don't say that's a key. Yeah. You show them a cup and they've never seen a, that particular sort of cup. You know, it may have, yeah. may have a clowns on it or yeah. something. They've never seen it. That's a cup. Yeah. And uh, if you do this experiment with two-year-olds, they sort of think, why is this person asking me these dumb questions? Right. <laughs> it's a key. Yeah. It's a cup. And they can do that effortlessly. Our computer vision algorithms still are not good at that. Our failure to have robust computer vision, as robust as a two-year-old child, tells me we still haven't figured out the basic way that animals even do it. Um, I'm still waiting. At some point, someone's got to get it right, but it hasn't happened yet. Now, I think we may get a little little too engineering-centric in a lot of scientific thinking in that we think about there being modules. Per se. Well, evolution didn't necessarily design a module and perfect it. Evolution is willing to do any mucky thing that happens to be a local advantage. Our, our computational systems are nowhere near as robust or adaptive as even simple biological systems.
1: Artificial intelligence is a wild card. We do not know where AI will take us. This we do know. Brains work on multiple levels. Neurons, individual nerve cells, each dauntingly complex, a trillion of them. Synapses, the gaps between neurons where cocktails of chemicals flow and ebb, a quadrillion of them. Brain circuits. Millions of neurons linked together in organized pathways, each with specific functions, such as movement. Brain systems, massive brain areas working together to conduct major tasks, such as learning or emotions. I've thought about brains my whole life. I never weary. In the cosmos, whether brains are routine or rare, brains open our window of reality and bring us closer to truth.